Good morning. We're in Mark 7, verses 24 through 30. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, God. You may be seated. Now, as you are sitting, as uh, kids, you go to your class, I just want to give you a a quick encouragement. I know um, for many of us, it's summer. For some of us, that may be the first time that that distinction has been made uh, because not all of us live by the school year. Um, But we all feel that tense pressure that the, the holiday season kind of blended right into a busy spring, and now it's summer and we're all of a sudden supposed to rest, right? Um, I know you're tired, I'm tired, we're all tired. That physical exhaustion, that mental and spiritual exhaustion is a reminder that we are humans and we have limits. So you need rest. Rest is good. I want to ask you and encourage you to not rest from relationships. Do not take a break from the church. Please do not pull away from what Jesus has designed to actually give us rest. When we rest, we are meant to work towards resting in Christ. And part of this, just part of it, is that we remain in close-knit relationships with other Christians, okay? So this thing that we're doing this morning, this is rest for our souls, that we'd be pointed back to the source of our restoration. Some of you feel that rest. You feel excited and encouraged and filled with that hope and excitement as you leave. That's good. But we're not meant to then say, okay, well, I'm going to take a break for the summer. I'm going to pull out of groups. I'm going to pull out of all these events. I'm going to pull out of relationships because it's being connected to the body of Christ where he's able to minister to us in very specific and unique ways that we wouldn't get alone. And so just a few ways here at Redeemer that you can find and continue that connection. So if you're new to Redeemer, here's a few things that we have going on this summer. We just had the men's event on Friday. Uh, We ate some crawfish and some sausage, and those were incredible things. Um, Taylor did a great job cooking. Uh, and we just hung out while he was cooking and talked to everybody. That was fun, right? We didn't really do much else. There's another ladies' event coming up next Friday. Um, I don't think there's going to be crawfish at that one, but there's going to be food. There's going to be opportunity just to do the same thing, stand around, talk, uh, and eventually make our ways back home. Um, There's also, we're going to continue, obviously, gathering on Sunday mornings. There's time before our gatherings. We've got the cafe open with coffee. Um, And then even after our gatherings, we just encourage you guys to hang around, uh, make your ways to lunch slowly. We usually get out around 11.15, 11.20. That's plenty of time to not feel anxious going to, 
I don't know, when I was growing up, it was Golden Corral, so I don't know if people still go there for lunch, but um, so we've got our men and women's events, and those will be the last events until our birthday this summer uh, in, in August, um, and then we've got our gatherings, prayer and worship night, like, um, did you mention this already, Brian, prayer and worship nights, the first Wednesdays of every month at six o'clock in this room. The first Wednesday of every month, six o'clock in this room, we gather to pray and to worship. And that's really what we do. That's really what we do. It's not an opportunity for me or Brian to talk about prayer and worship. We don't do that. We say, thanks for coming. Here's why we're here. And then we pray and we worship. That's what we do. So come and join us for that. Uh, And then uh, we also have something special coming up, Family Discipleship Week, which is it's, it's structured and geared very, very similar, similarly to a VBS. The only difference is that really, because this is our first time doing it, we're targeting our families, okay? So um, please come. If you want to be involved with that, to get to know some more people through serving that week, that's going to be, I think, the week of June 19th. Uh, and um, I think that's Tuesday through Friday, if I'm not mistaken. But if you'd like more information about that, to bring your kids to that, or if you want to serve, you can talk to Cassie, or you can talk to anyone that's any adult in a classroom right now. Uh, the kids are not going to have any idea what you're talking about. The last thing is groups. If you're in a group, don't pull away this summer. I really want to encourage you, do not pull away this summer. If you are not in a group, get in one this summer. Just because it's summer doesn't mean that it's not the right time, okay? Please do not pull away from a group. Please do not think that the summer is not a time to get engaged. These are the spaces for Redeemer where our people are the most pastored, where we are the most close-knit to other believers. These are the opportunities where we can be most known and know people the most, all right, that's not going to happen necessarily in passing conversations this morning or prayer and worship, all those things that I just said. Groups are the place that are designed for us to know and be known, know and be known by other Christians. So please engage in those this summer. Okay, that's it. Now it's sermon time. I'm already five minutes in. Um, we're going to talk about shame today. So if you need some tissues, there's some tissues down there. I'm probably going to need some, but I'll be fine. I'll make it through. I got my water bottle. Um, I feel behind. You guys feel behind? Like, we say here a lot, you're not behind. You're exactly where the Spirit has you, which is true. We wholeheartedly believe that. But there's a reason we say that. There's a reason we repeat that to you because we repeat it to ourselves. Brian and I say this to one another and to ourselves often. But we have to say that because we feel behind. I feel wrong a lot of times, like I'm in the wrong part of my Christian walk. Like not even necessarily in my vocation or in my parenting, just as a Christian, I just doubt myself. Like I should be farther along than I am. But especially as a parent, especially as a friend, especially as a pastor and in my preaching, I feel like I've got so much work just to catch up to where I should be, not to where I want to be. Now, 
I'll give you a, just a little insight. There's a preaching trick that we use where we start talking about ourselves and our feelings and our stories. Hopefully, you can see, I want you to see that this sermon first preached to me this week. Because I carry a lot of shame and I feel behind. And I don't have to hope. I don't have to like try to conjure up this idea that maybe you do too. I know you do. Shame is a human emotion. You can relate to anybody in the world with shame. Now, they probably won't talk to you about it because of shame. It's probably going to be some distance. You start talking, hey, let's talk about shame. I rode on an airplane recently, and that never crossed my mind to talk to a stranger about shame. But I bet we could have. And I bet we would have been very similar. I bet we both would have confessed to each other, I feel behind. And there's like this thing in me as a millennial that I think I have to be like achieving what my parents did in their 50s in my 30s. And that's not because there's an expectation on me. I can't put that on the world or or my parents or other people. That's me. So let's, let's talk for a second just so we can be clear about what shame feels like. I've already explained it from my perspective a little bit. Do, can we say just out loud, what does shame feel like? Bad. Yeah, bad. Exactly. Say it again. Yes, it's heavy. Something we carry. What's that? Embarrassing. Embarrassing. Thank you for saying that word. If you have ever said to yourself or someone close to you, hey, no, 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 we're not going to do that. That would be embarrassing. You're carrying shame. Anything else? Yes. Yes. See, we're all familiar. We carry shame and we also carry guilt. Shame and guilt are partners in crime. We likely cannot feel guilt and shame separately. We feel them together. Because when we're guilty, we feel shame for our guilt. And then if we just feel shame, then we feel wrong. Like, should I be feeling this? Shame is a natural human emotion. And like all of our emotions, shame teaches us how to survive the world doesn't it? We learned how to survive this world by responding to our shame, either by performing or praying. And for the majority of us in this room, I would not be surprised if, the first, if this is the first time you've heard someone say, we can respond to shame with prayer because we've been taught I don't know if it's because we're American or if it's just because we're people, but we've been taught to respond to our shame by performing. Just talk to an athlete. Maybe some of you in here are athletes and you have used critics and criticisms as fuel and motivation to do better and make yourself better and try harder. That's shame. When shame teaches us to perform, 
we survive in this world by growing independent, hurried, and shame-driven. So we start to then shame ourselves. We start to tell ourselves, no, you're not good enough. You have to keep trying harder. You have to keep up. You're behind. And the way that we see ourselves and talk to ourselves becomes shame-driven so that we can continue this upward linear progress of independence and hurry so that we can keep running away from shame. We find comfort in our shame because that's how we survive the world, right? Like we can't, this sermon will not free you from that. But there's a better way, there's a human way, a more human way to survive the world. The way of Christ. There's a better way to survive our shame, and that's through prayer. Shame can teach us to pray. And when we allow shame to guide our prayers, we actually grow in the complete opposite ways that performance causes us to grow. We grow dependent, which is a scary feeling when we've just structured our whole lives around growing independent. But we grow dependent. We grow present. We realize what's most important. We make ourselves aware, present, and attentive to the things that really matter in our lives. We can slow down, say yes to what's good, and say no to what's not good, and sometimes even say no to good things to say yes to better things. But it also leads us on this upward, not linear, but it's kind of, you guys know, it's a wave of progress towards realizing that Jesus is cleaning us up. Jesus is freeing us from shame. And so as shame teaches us to pray, in Jesus we grow dependent, present, and clean. And so let's enter into this story, this story of Mark 7 together. Let's understand from this story what the Holy Spirit is telling us about surviving this world through prayer. Like Kirstie read, Jesus makes his way into this region of Tyre and Sidon. If you want to know the Greek way to say Tyre, it's Turas. Then you can sound really pretentious when you're talking about this later to your friends. Jesus went to Turas and Sidon, uh, but he went here to get rest because he's been everywhere he's gone since he calmed the storm, actually since he fed the 5,000, um, Jesus has been looking for rest. He's pursuing it. He's working for it. He's going to find it. And so he goes to this region outside of Israel, and what's important for us to understand about this region is that it's not in Israel. It's very much Gentile. And they are what, we, what the history books would call Hellenistic. Have you ever heard that word, the Hellenists? These are people that, um, it's like we call America this melting pot. It's like that on steroids. And so we start talking about this Hellenistic culture. You guys, did y'all ever have a friend or maybe your kids had a friend uh, when they were in middle school, that, that was the kid that mixed all the sodas in the soda machine. If you were that kid, that's okay. Keep listening. I'm going to teach you how to survive the world through prayer. 
You'll be all right. But we call that, I think some people call that swamp water. Okay. Tyre and Sidon were this region. They were drinking all the swamp water. Okay. This was this incredible amalgamation of cultures and religions. And not just that they tolerated other religions, but that they believed them all to be equally true. They actually participated in all religions. And so this region, um, this is important because we learn that this woman that comes to Jesus is Syrophoenician. That's important for us to know this swamp water because she's drinking it. She's participating in all of that. That gives us one clue as to why she comes to Jesus. She knows she's unclean. Yet still she comes to this man who she shouldn't be talking to. Her home is unclean. Her family is unclean. Her daughter is possessed by an unclean spirit. Now, because verse 26 tells us everything we need to know about this woman, there is one thing about her response to Jesus that, it, that the description of her leaves out, her theology. In Genesis 12, all the way back in Genesis 12, there's this promise. God comes to Abraham. He calls him out of all of humanity, and he says, hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And this guy was old. There are some of you in here who would laugh if I said, man, I just feel so old because you're like, you don't even know. Abraham would say that to you. Dude's old. And God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. He has no kids, yet the promise that there would be this incredible family come from him is, is given, that, that they would be blessed with a family that would grow and proliferate and expand. And so this, this promise is actually um, looking ahead into the creation of this nation, Israel. Okay, so Jesus being born through the lineage and in the region of Israel makes him a Jew. We already established that this woman is not Jewish. She's very Gentile. She's swamp water Gentile. And Jesus is the complete opposite. Now, what we have been seeing in the last couple of sermons is this conversation Jesus is having with the scribes and the Pharisees. And Jesus has some really harsh words for these people. These are the people who, when you're like, when you're like okay, religiously, who's clean, who's unclean? We get the spectrum in chapter 7 of Mark. We get the scribes and the Pharisees who do everything they can to stay clean, that they even build on top of God's law, how arrogant is that, that they would stay clean. They'd stay so far away from sinning against God's law that they would keep themselves clean over here. And then we have this woman at the end of Mark chapter 7 who comes. It's unignorable how unclean she is. And Jesus doesn't, he's not within this spectrum. We all fit within this spectrum. But what Jesus says is that both are unclean. There's no one in the spectrum of humanity except for Jesus that is clean, ritually or not. 
All have sinned and fallen short. We've all defiled ourselves and defiled each other. We've all adopted shame and cast shame. And our best efforts to clean ourselves up only make it worse. This is what's being pulled out of chapter 7. We have a problem. We're defiled. We're unclean. We're full of shame. And there's nothing we can do about it. When Jesus ends his last paragraph, what does it say in verse 20, um, 21 through 23? He says, it's, it's the stuff that comes out of you that defiles you. And then he doesn't say, so here's how you become clean. He just says, this is what comes out of you and you're defiled. That's it. And then we get this picture in chapter 7 of this woman from Tyre and Sidon, Turus. Outside of this Genesis 12 promise of this blessing of the nation of Israel, this chosen people pulled out of the wilderness from God. And we just wonder, right? Okay, if it's not the Pharisees who are over-obedient, and if it's not this woman who runs in the opposite direction, then who can be made clean? How can we overcome what has defiled us and how we have defiled ourselves? How can we overcome our sin and our shame in this endless trajectory towards death that we're all on? How can we overcome that if these two extremes and everything in between can't do that? We learn from this woman why she's here. If she's outside of this promise, because the promise of blessing gives a little bit of hope that God's going to do something for Israel in this regard. But if this woman is outside of this promise, and the vast majority of us fit in that, we're, like we're Gentiles, okay? So we're probably not, uh, whether by lineage or observation, Jewish. Some of us might be. The, most, the majority of us aren't. And so we're outside of this Genesis 12 promise. So why come to Jesus? Like we should be asking ourselves that question regularly. Why Jesus? Why am I a Christian? Or why not Jesus? Why am I not a Christian? Why do I not believe? What we learn from this woman is that her shame had taught her that Jesus is worth coming to. Her shame had taught her to pray. How she had made herself unclean, how others had made her unclean, and and the, the deep need that she had brought her to the feet of Jesus, literally. Just like this woman, we find ourselves in deep spiritual need, in a dark, dark place. And it's not the Hellenists alone that drink the swab water, as we drink it too. We have this Western individualism that tells us that we can find satisfaction and truth for ourselves. And we use any means possible to make that happen. And don't think that's just an unchristian thing. Christians drink the swamp water. We do. We're both legalists 
and licentiousnesses. <laughs> Should have thought about that before I said it. Meaning we, we find ourselves in this hyper-religious group often, but we also find ourselves running from God and towards pleasure often. So who can be made clean and how do we do it? Well, we're raised to be self-sufficient, shame-driven performers. That's how we're raised. That's how we learn. It's not just the people who raise us that way. That's in us as people. But we're designed to pray. And it's not prayer that makes us clean. It's not prayer that makes us dependent. It's not prayer that makes us present to God and one another. Prayer brings us to the one who does all those things for us. So now we'll look at verse 27 because there's probably a couple of questions that we're asking that need to be answered before we pray. Verse 27. Remember this woman comes to Jesus and she says, please, 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 she had been begging, please heal my daughter Make her clean, cast this demon out. And Jesus says to her, let the children be fed first. That's the Genesis 12 promise. Through Abraham, we get Israel, and there's a blessing and a promise for Israel. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. How many of you who um, either have kids of your own or you have friends who have kids um, or you're a teacher, how many of you would take, serve a meal to a child and then say, doesn't that look good? Now let's give it to the dog. That's what Jesus is saying. We don't do that. There's a meal being served to the kids. We let them eat. Now, the question that you have is not about the meal, right? It's about why does Jesus call this woman and her, her daughter a dog? We also get a, a, a little more detail from the story being told in Matthew 15 that this woman had been following Jesus probably since he crossed the border and he had made himself unclean, according to the scribes and Pharisees, by leaving Israel. He crossed the border and she probably was waiting for him to come to her neighborhood. And she chased them and followed them into this house, begging. And Matthew 15 says that he didn't say a word to her this whole time until the disciples finally said, hey, She's crying out. Can't you hear it? We're getting annoyed. Would you just send her away? Because you're obviously not going to help her. You shouldn't. And Jesus comes and gives this response. I didn't come just for everybody. I came for Israel, right? We can't feed the kids food to the dogs. That doesn't make sense. Now, why does he give her this non-response? Why does he not respond to her in, in what we think seems like ignoring her. And then why does he call her a dog? There's three things. The first thing is, we cannot read scripture with our own worldview being imposed on it. We come from a hypersensitive, overly politically correct culture. And we tend to read scripture with those eyes. We cannot do that. We must come to Scripture on its terms, asking good questions, not making it answer 
the ones we come to it with. The best teachers ask their students questions, and the best students respond to that question with a question. And then the same thing happens on the other side. If a, if a good student asks a question to his teacher, the teacher then responds with a good question. This is how we should interact with Scripture, constantly in a place of humility and learning, realizing, okay, Mark was written, this is an ancient text. They're not ri- it's not written to me with my iPhone. So we, we've got to come first on terms of Scripture, and then we can bring ourselves into it, okay? That's the first thing I have to say. The second thing I have to say is that Jesus is entering this woman's world on her terms while then inviting her into his world on his terms. So he's aware that she's already driven to him from shame. So when he makes this comment, We can't give the kids food to the dogs. He's not calling her a dog. He's acknowledging how she and the world around her see her. He's saying, hey, I'm not distant from reality. I know how you already see yourself. You're not unworthy. Sorry, you're not worthy. And, And her response is so humble in immediate, she says, yeah, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. But remember, her theology is right. And she says, but I know there's another part to the Genesis 12 promise. The crumbs that fall from the children's table, the dogs can get those too. Now, they're using this illustration probably that was happening near them. They were in a home If you've ever seen a toddler eat, most of the food ends up on the floor or on their clothes. And what this woman is saying is that Genesis 12 promise makes this great promise to Israel, this great promise of blessing, that the world would be blessed. So Jesus, could you just give me some of that blessing? She knows her shame. He knows her shame. They're both aware of this chasm between them But Jesus then builds a bridge across it. That's why we don't get a response. That's why he calls them dogs. It's to pull out what's really in her. This is that third and deepest reason that Jesus responds to her the way that he does. Um, Has anybody ever made a souffle? I had a feeling no one would raise their hand. I haven't either, but I've watched enough TV. I was, I was just an isolated high school kid. I watch Cooking Channel all the time. And I've seen really good, smart professionals make souffles. And every time they say, you can't pull it out too soon. You're going to see it rise. It's going to get to the, that certain point. And you just wait. Don't intervene. And it's that pause that allows the souffle to hold its structure. It allows the souffle to become what it really is meant to become. We also have these four different types of pauses in music. I had to look this up. I'm not that smart. But there's four different categories of pauses in music. Each one of them has their own purpose. It's for 
people in the band to catch their breath. It's for uh, the conductor or whatever. But all four of them are put in a piece intentionally so that there's a moment of the piece where we can just stop and catch our breath and feel the music around us, feel this moment together. This moment that Jesus gives with this non-response is like baking a souffle. It is like this intentional pause. This moment is meant to pull out of this woman and Jesus who they really are. And so think about this. When you pray and Jesus doesn't give you the response immediately that you want or expect, consider Maybe you're a souffle. Maybe he's just giving you a chance to decide whether you're going to perform or you're going to keep praying. Listen to what um, author and pastor Paul Miller has to say. This is a long quote, but it's so good, and the whole thing is necessary. Like, why? Why? pull this out of us? What's the point of of drawing out of us who we really are, of Jesus revealing his true self to us through this this pause and this non-response? Here's what he says. If Jesus were a magic prayer machine, which we need to repent of treating him like that, if Jesus were a magic prayer machine, he'd have healed this woman's daughter instantly. We would not have discovered her feisty creative spirit. Likewise, Jesus' ambiguity with us creates the space not only for him to emerge, but for us as well. If the miracle comes too quickly, there's no room for discovery, for relationship. Everyone talks now about how prayer is relationship, but often what people mean is having warm fuzzies with God. Nothing wrong with warm fuzzies, but relationships are far richer and more complex. Here's what we're not saying, me and Paul Miller. We're not shaming you into a better prayer life. I am not here to say you should be praying more. Anytime you hear the word should, you should hear the word shame. What I am telling you is that the point of our whole lives is prayer. Because prayer is not just a formula. It's not just, thank you, God, please, God. It's a constant presence with God, an acknowledgement that he is with us, that he, like Jesus going to Tyre and Sidon, he has come into our neighborhood. And it's good and right for us to fall at his feet. Realizing that we are unclean. This passage isn't even a comparison between you and this woman. It's not about her amazing faith, which is there. This passage is not about her faith. It's about who she has faith in. It's here to show us that Jesus is dependable. That he is always present with us. And that he's the one continually making us clean.
And I hope and I pray that once you can see him, you can see that he alone is worthy for you to be dependent on, to be present with, and for him to be the only source that you run to to be made clean. Now, because I really, really mean this, I take prayer very seriously. And I mean seriously, not like I'm a curmudgeon about it. Sometimes maybe I can be when my flesh comes out. But I mean, I take it serious like I really mean it. Prayer is our life as Christians. Uh, we're going to take some time. We're going we're gonna to pray. So we're going to have some time where I'm going to lead us through a little bit of a prayer. And then I'll give some moment for you to respond to the Lord. To pray, to listen to him. And then I'll pray again. So we're going to kind of move that way back and forth. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to work through, because the theme of Mark is repent and believe, right? We're going to work through repenting of performing and believing that Jesus is worth us praying to. So however you want to get comfortable, if you want to sit just like you are, um, if the person next to you is falling asleep, you can wake them up. That's up to you. If you want to just turn around in your chair and get on your knees, if you want to close your eyes, whatever, get comfortable. It's going to take a minute. I'm going to use Psalm 139, 23 through 24, kind of as our structure to guide us. Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Let's pray together. Father, please search us and know our hearts and our thoughts. As you abide in us by your spirit, would you reveal to us the wicked ways we pursue independence from you? Give us ears to hear you now. And we thank you, Jesus, for your mercy. We ask that you would lead us in your eternal way of knowing you. Would you increase our faith to believe that you are dependable and that we are dependent on you? Father, please again search our hearts and our thoughts. As you abide in us by your spirit, reveal to us the wicked ways that we hurry and remain absent from you. Give us ears to hear you now. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Lead us in your eternal way of knowing you. We ask that you would increase our faith to believe that you are always present with us and there is fullness of life in being with you. Father, please continue to search us and to know us. 
as you abide in us by your spirit, reveal to us the wicked ways that we try so hard to clean up and grow up. Give us ears to hear you now. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Lead us in your eternal way of knowing you. Increase our faith to believe that only you are making us clean and encourage our souls with the hope that you will complete this work in us. So now would you lift your eyes? Would you look to the screen? We're gonna pray together the ending of Psalm 139, 23 and 24. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in us. And lead us in the eternal way. Amen. Shame teaches us to pray. And in Jesus, we grow dependent, present, and clean. When Jesus says uh, in Mark 7, 15, that what comes out of our hearts is what defiles us. It's also an instruction for us to look at what comes out of him and to see that nothing defiled or impure or unclean ever comes out of him, that he is trustworthy, that he is dependable, that he is present, and that he is clean, that he is the source of cleanness. Band, you can go ahead and come up. We see that from Jesus, when he says what comes out of us is who we really are, we see that in Jesus, he has compassion for a shame-covered daughter. He has mercy for yet another interruption. He has time and attention for a person in need. He has the grace to give her a crumb, a taste of a greater blessing yet to come. Jesus means what he says. Genesis 12, the blessing, the promise of blessing is not just for Israel. God promised to bless Israel so the whole world would be blessed. And throughout Jesus' ministry, he's announcing this to everyone when he says, if anyone would come to me, I will make them clean. I will give them rest. The father sent the son so that all would look on who would look on him would be saved. If anyone calls upon the name of the Lord, they would be saved. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was poured out on the cross as the fulfillment of the Genesis 12 promise that from Israel, the world would be blessed, that we'd be set free and saved from shame, sin, and death. And so this morning, as the church, as the body of believers, we take the cup that represents his blood poured out. We take the bread that represents his body broken. We do this in remembrance of him. And we do this every week, proclaiming his death until he comes back for us. So if you trust Jesus to make you clean, to free you from shame, would you please join me at the table?